This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Seidman. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up, and we've got a whole bunch of topics to discuss this week, including the end of the road for my MacBook Pro keyboard, the Ouya is also dead on June 25th. We'll explore what happens after that date. Uh, we'll continue our discussion on end-user license agreements and how the revocation of a EULA might impact your ability to drive your car or your tractor. We'll explore that topic in detail. We're also going to expand upon my review this week of the Brave browser because they have a very innovative ad model, I think, and we'll be looking at the mechanics of how digital advertising currently works and why it is so concerning to many folks out there from a privacy and security standpoint. And we'll look at ad fraud and whether or not the Brave model is going to fix that problem as well, because it is a very big problem for digital advertisers. Lots to look at now, so let's get to it. Now, before we begin, I want to thank our newest supporters here on the channel, including Michael Torville and James Brooks, who contributed via the donor box page. And Gerald Kyle, who set up a YouTube membership on the channel. I want to thank everyone for their contributions this week, along with everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis and everyone who watches on a regular basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. So let's take a look now at the week in review. We had a bunch of stuff go up on the Extras channel this week, including an unboxing of two inexpensive tablets. On the super cheap side, the Amazon Fire 7 that we'll be reviewing later this week and the iPad 9.7 that we'll also be reviewing a little later this week. And then I also noticed in the course of doing that iPad review that nobody really had posted any videos about the new iMovie green screen feature. Uh, So I made one and put it up there in the hopes of grabbing some search traffic, and it's starting to pick up some steam there. Uh, So whenever you see something that you uh, know how to do and nobody's posted a video about, do it because people will be looking for advice as to how to get things working. And that iMovie green screen feature was one that uh, was pretty easy to do, but it was kind of buried inside the feature set and does require a little bit of instruction to find. So check it out if you are curious about how to do green screen on your iPad. Pretty cool stuff. Works on the iPhone, too. And then on the main channel, of course, we had the Brave Browser Review. Uh, We also looked at a beta of the new Roku HD Home Run channel. That's off to a good start. What's interesting about this is that they couldn't get it to work with their HD Home Run Prime at Silicon Dust headquarters, but it worked here. So they're trying to figure out exactly why that is. So if you are uh, with a Roku and an HD Home Run at your house, give it a shot and head over to their forums and provide some feedback so they can continue troubleshooting it. But I think it's good to finally get something on the Roku if you've got one of those digital tuners. And in full disclosure, Silicon Dust, the makers of the HD Home Run, is an occasional sponsor here on the channel. They didn't sponsor this video, however. And we took a look at the Lenovo Smart Clock, which is a little Google Home device with a screen that is designed for your nightstand. And we put it through its paces and talked about what it can and can't do. And you can find all of those videos linked down below in the master playlist. And now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind. And this is week 120 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And this week, my MacBook Pro's keyboard finally bit the dust to a point where 
I couldn't work with it anymore. I've been delaying sending it in because it's such a necessary part of my workflow. But at this point, it's got to go in because it's just not cooperating. So uh, I went on Apple's website to their keyboard service program. And even though Apple says there's nothing wrong with their keyboards, they do have this ongoing uh, voluntary recall, essentially, that will take back any of these eligible models for repair, even if your Apple Care has expired. And what happened to me is that my spacebar finally just stopped working properly, and it's really just unusable at this point. Uh, my T key was out of whack before. I could live with that, but it's finally time to just get it sent in. Uh, the good thing about Apple is that they are pretty good on the customer service stuff, provided you don't go to the store. I hate going to the store. I've talked about how it, it reminds me of kind of like going to the DMV. They never meet their appointments on time. They rarely get you a resolution to your problem. Uh, so what I had them do is send me a box. I'm going to put the computer in the box. It goes back to them, and hopefully it come back, comes back repaired. Uh, this, incidentally, is the third time I've had to send that computer in, uh, partly because this is the first generation of that uh, redesign that they did on the MacBook Pros back in 2016. So when I got it, uh, the speakers blew out when I loaded up Windows on it. They had a bit of a driver issue that was driving too much power to the speakers. Uh, so they fixed that pretty quickly. Uh, the second issue I had was that the USB-C ports were getting very loose connections. Uh, and that was very early on. I sent that in and they actually replaced like half the computer at that point. So this time it'll be the keyboard. And I'm very curious to see if they're going to put in the new keyboard with all the new membranes and things designed to prevent these issues from occurring or if they're just going to uh, blow out the dust and just send it back to me. We'll have to see what it looks like when it comes back to me. But if you have a MacBook and are having keyboard problems like everyone is, uh, my advice would be to send it in, get it fixed, uh, because at some point they're probably going to end this keyboard service program and you'll have to probably pay to get it repaired in the future. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. And if you were a fan of the Ouya like I was, uh, I have some bad news. They're going to be shutting down the platform on June 25th. Now the hardware hasn't been manufactured in a while, uh, but the store was still running because Ouya got bought by Razer. Uh, Razer was going to attempt to launch their own little mini game console and figured having the Ouya ecosystem was a good place to start. Uh, Ouya began its life as a Kickstarter. I was one of the early backers of it. And I like this idea of a console that was focused on independent developers and was open in that you could download emulators, for example, and play all your retro games in addition to some things that the retro community cooked up. Uh, but they got overshadowed. They got overshadowed by the rising popularity of Steam and PC gaming that became a real hub for independent developers. Sony and Microsoft started allowing more independent titles on their stores. And of course, they have just significantly larger market reach and marketing muscle uh, that really would overpower a scrappy little startup like this. And everyone that attempted to try to make something out of the Ouya kind of failed here, including Razer, after they bought the platform. It just never took hold. And what's crazy is that we continue to see these attempts at launching these game consoles to do the same thing. That's just never going to work, in my opinion. Uh, so we have, of course, the Atari VCS that a lot of folks are a bit uneasy about, especially those who made early pre-orders on the device. Uh, they closed a round of pre-orders. They completely redesigned the console, apparently, and now they're reopening those pre-orders. I'm guessing those who contributed during the first round are still going to get their console if it ever gets produced. Uh, but it really, this is all about 
getting the investment without the equity. So the only thing you have to show for your investment over time is a piece of plastic that they will ship to you at some point, hopefully with a motherboard inside. Uh, this is going to start at $249 uh, and will go up to about $400 depending on the configuration. And they're still marketing this as a game console. They should just call it a mini PC and be done with it. It is going to have some AMD Ryzen hardware inside. It might be a cool little device for PC gamers, but they're really trying to build their own proprietary thing around it. And then there is the Intellivision Amico, another proprietary piece of hardware that's trying to revive an old brand like Atari is. But at the end of the day, it's a proprietary piece of hardware with a proprietary app store, game store, uh, wrapped around it. And it's not going to work for these folks. It's not going to work for Atari. It didn't even work for NVIDIA and Amazon when they attempted to build out their own game console ecosystem. NVIDIA with the Shield found that uh, people were not looking to buy dedicated Shield games. They pivoted to other things that uh, have been able to keep that set-top box going but not updated for the last three or four years. Uh, we also had Amazon with the Fire TV try to make that into a gaming device. They even sold a gaming edition of the Fire TV way back when. They gave up on that and actually made their current Fire TVs less powerful than the old ones because people were not buying them to play games. I think it's really down here to Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo along with the PC. That is all this market has room for. The Switch was kind of an anomaly, actually, because a lot of people doubted it would work out. But Nintendo's advantage, of course, is that they have the resources to put together a top-notch first-party game development studio that puts out some amazing titles like Zelda and Mario Odyssey and all the other great games they've been producing. Without that first-party studio, I don't think it ever would have taken off, and these companies certainly don't have the resources to match that. Uh, So it is a competitive industry. It's an industry that's getting more and more commoditized. We're seeing Microsoft even uh, kind of pivoting away from just the dedicated hardware portion of the gaming market to a market that has games that you can choose to play on your Xbox or play that same game on your PC if you want. Uh, That's where it's going. It is not going to be going here. And I hope people realize that before they put their hard-earned money into one of these startups. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And our first question comes in from Eyes of Buys in regards to our ongoing discussion on end-user license agreements. Uh, Now, one of the things that we talked about last week was that most software agreements have a clause in them that allows the uh, publisher to terminate that agreement anytime they want. And Ben Garrett wrote in with a bunch of examples from some older games as to how all of this can take place. And of course, these things were not very realistically revocable because people had physical media on a disc or a cartridge and short of going and seizing it from uh, the customer or forcing them into court, it was very difficult to do that kind of license revocation. Uh, And what Eyes of Buys here is asking is, what about the car in his or her garage? Can you just go in and have the car seized by the company if they decide to terminate uh, your license agreement? It seems effed up. And it sure does seem effed up that uh, things that would normally apply to a piece of software like this might actually apply to hardware, but it kind of does. John Deere is a great example. Uh, We've talked about this in the past over the right to repair movement because John Deere has been preventing uh, farmers from working on their harvesters and tractors and everything without going through a dealer first because everything is so directly intertwined uh, with the software that John Deere develops for their equipment. And they've really dug in their heels on this. And I decided to go and check out whether or not John Deere 
has an end user license agreement. And sure enough, they do. They have a license agreement for their embedded software. Now, some of the John Deere software is open source, but there's a lot of proprietary software that's driving it as well. John Deere says this is for safety. They don't want people messing up the software and getting people hurt or killed. That's understandable. But there's also a lot of crazy language inside of their end user license agreement uh, that for a tractor reads a lot like your Microsoft operating system might, uh, including the termination. The licensor, the John Deere company, may terminate the license granted under this license agreement upon written notice. And if they were to uh, enforce that license, you would still have your tractor, but you couldn't use it because they are so intertwined with the software that is running that's driving that hardware in the first place. Very similar to what you might see in a Tesla automobile, uh, where that car certainly won't turn on without any software driving it. And of course, it would render the hardware essentially useless if they decide to pull that license. But sure enough, it's in there, and you agree to that when you buy the tractor. Another thing that you agree to with John Deere is that should you decide to sue them over their decision to revoke your license, you can't. You agree to basically binding arbitration, that you have to go and see an arbiter in Illinois, not in your home state, to resolve whatever issues you might have with the John Deere uh, company related to this end-user license agreement. So the customer, in this case the farmer or the uh, agricultural company, has very little recourse here. They could have their license pulled, and they have no real way to resolve the issue in court. And this is the kind of stuff that we're going to be seeing more and more of as software and all of the things that have been going with it over the last 30 years from a legal standpoint uh, begin to get so directly intertwined with hardware that it's going to be very difficult to discern the difference between the two. I could sell my Tesla car, but the software on it is required for it to work, and if that license has been revoked, it's an issue, and it's getting a lot easier now to revoke those licenses because think about the past. If you had a CD or a game cartridge, What's the company going to do? Sue you and come to your house and directly seize it from your hands? It wasn't practical to do that. But now that our equipment is constantly phoning home, the Tesla car is hooked up to an LTE network and is always connected to headquarters, they can push a button and revoke that license in a heartbeat. That happens now with the Steam store with your games. It is so efficient now to enforce terms of a license agreement that really hasn't been enforced over the last 20 or 30 years because it was totally impractical to do it but now they can very efficiently revoke licenses. And I think we're going to see a lot of companies testing this over the next couple of years, especially as people try to dig in and uh, hack into the software and make it do different things. It is going to be a really crazy couple of years here when all of this kicks in. And all it's going to take is that one company to decide to do a mass license revocation uh, digitally to really set this whole thing in motion. And I'm sure it's going to happen at some point because these companies aren't going to give an inch. And I think they will certainly do whatever they can do uh, with the power they have to protect their intellectual property. So lots to see here in the coming months. And unfortunately, it's never going to be good for consumers. And in response to our video on the Brave browser last week, Big Len wrote in with a couple of concerns. Uh, One, of course, being that they're relying on cryptocurrency for the transactions. But he's also concerned, though, about how people could afford to use the Internet if they had to pay for everything that they do online. He understands that it takes money to live, but our world simply cannot afford premium everything. And I think that's kind of the problem we're in right now, is that things are either free or they require some huge subscription. And what I liked about the Brave model is that It's looking at something in between where you are dedicating an amount of money that you would maybe normally pay for a subscription somewhere and then directing those funds out 
based on the attention that you're giving to a specific site. That's actually exactly how YouTube Premium works. Uh, I am paid for every minute of your attention based on the subscription dollars that you're putting in every month. And this is similar to what Brave is doing. They're going to put an ad in front of you. They will pay you a little bit of money to look at that ad. You can choose to pocket those dollars or distribute those dollars out to the things that you've been looking at based on the amount of attention that you've applied to their sites. And they'll also let you put more money in if you want to supplement those ad dollars coming in so that you can provide more money to the sites that you're visiting if you choose. And they have a tip jar function as well for a direct contribution. That's the model. And it's very different than the model we have now where everything is free but has ads attached to it. And what began as something that was very simple, which was you go on a website and you see an ad, has turned into something much more complex because advertisers want to target audience versus publications. And when they want to target audience, that means you have to give up some of your personal privacy to get that stuff for free so that the ad can be targeted to you specifically. And this is what it looks like now in 2019 after all of these systems have had essentially 20 years to develop. So while you're sitting at your computer and browsing a website that has ads on it, uh, what's happening is is that your web browser is sending out a lot of information uh, to a supply-side platform to determine exactly who you are and what the value of your attention might be. Some of the things that are being transmitted include your location, Uh, In some cases, it'll be your GPS location from your phone, all those free apps that you downloaded. Well, guess what? When you agreed to share your location with the app, uh, that began broadcasting your exact precise location that advertisers are using for very finely targeted advertising. Uh, It's also doing some stuff based on your IP or your MAC address. It's sending all that stuff up to the uh, mothership there for targeting. Uh, There's also first-party cookies, like an abandoned shopping cart. Let's say you were over at Amazon, you put some some ramen noodles or something in your cart, and and you didn't buy them. Well, there's a cookie generated that will keep putting those ramen noodles in front of you until you go back to Amazon and finally complete the transaction. That is a very common thing uh, to do with first-party cookies. But you can also have a first-party cookie for sites that you visited and a whole bunch of other things to make you try to come back again. On mobile, you can target by device ID. So even though they don't know your name, they might know the ID of your phone uh, based on an app, again, that you installed at some point. And perhaps that app developer is making money with that free app by selling device IDs to advertisers. That is another way that they can uh, find ways to target you. And then, of course, there are the third-party cookies, which are consumer profiles based on browsing history. And they develop these in a whole bunch of different ways. But basically, you can rest assured that if you've ever made a purchase in your life, uh, it is likely tied to an online profile that your browser is giving up every time you go somewhere. And that is why the ads that you see are often very well tailored to you and why your spouse or your best friend or your kids will see something totally different than you do. Because even though they don't know your exact identity, they know everything else about you. And this whole thing happens pretty much in real time. Uh, Here's an example of something you can buy from one of these uh, advertising platforms. Uh, They have, even down to the model number of an Acura, how many active users are out there. And if I am trying to sell you a new Acura or maybe a competing car, and I know I've got a car that lines up well with the Acura MDX, I can, with a good degree of confidence, know that I can reach about 1.1 million owners of that car 
to try to convince them to buy mine or maybe upgrade the car that they're in or whatever. And this is just one model of one automobile. And you can imagine just about everything else out there is also cataloged in this way. Your political leanings, the things that you support, uh, your orientation, for example, you name it, it's in these systems and can be directly targeted just based on what your browser gives up every time it goes to one of these sites. Now, this is where the crazier thing starts. Now, remember, just a second ago, we transmitted all of our personal information uh, via cookies from our web browser to a supply-side platform that is now feeding its data into an ad exchange. And they're saying to the ad exchange, hey, Lon is on a website right now. He's about to see an ad. He's got an accurate MDX. He is uh, maybe three years into his ownership there. He's 42 years old. He's got three kids, and he's living in uh, this uh, New England state here. What do you got for me? So the what do you got for me comes from the demand side platforms. Now, if I am the uh, car dealership or the brand and my agency wants to find potential customers, uh, they are going out to these demand side platforms and saying, hey, we're looking to put our ad on any Acura MDX owner who's aged uh, 30 to 45 and has two or three kids. So that meets my profile. So the ad exchange says, yep, we got those folks. How much do you want to pay for those people to see your ad? So maybe the folks on this DSP are going to bid uh, $5 per thousand. They call this a CPM. You pay for every 1,000 impressions and typically it's like five or six bucks per thousand if you're just out in the general commodities market, but it can go up from there, especially when you're dealing with video, like on YouTube, for example, those cost a lot more. But for the sake of our argument here, uh, we're gonna say that this car dealership is going to pay $5 per thousand impressions. So they send that into the ad exchange. It's sitting in there waiting for uh, these viewers of Acura MDX owners to appear on websites that are displaying ads from this exchange. But my competitor says, hey, we'll pay you $6 per thousand impressions for Lon's attention. And guess what? That $6 bid will win out. And this is all happening in real time. When you see one of those ads appear, this whole transaction occurs almost instantaneously trillions of times a day. And it's a decentralized network. There's ad exchanges that kind of act as the hubs of this, but there are exchanges within exchanges. All this stuff is happening all while you're browsing the web so you don't have to pay for anything. But the value of your attention increases with the amount of personal information that your browser is giving off. If you were just some random dude from New York City, uh, that is not as valuable as the 42-year-old who's got three kids and an accurate MDX that he's three years into his lease on. That is much more valuable to advertisers, and there's a real profit motive to look at this. And of course, because we are dealing with an economy that is focused on audience targeting, the more efficient you can get with that targeting, the more valuable it's going to be. I'd much rather pay 20 bucks to reach a small number of people that I know meets my criteria versus something much broader like I would get with a TV ad buy, for example. This is why advertisers love this stuff, and it's developed because nobody wants to pay for anything, so we just prefer just to have all this stuff happen in the background. We agree to some privacy policy that we never look at when we sign up with these sites, and here you go. This is what you end up with. Now, at the end of the chain here, the publisher does get a cut of this, but every step along the way here has money extracted, and the big money is in the services that match up my profile to other consumer data. In many cases, like when you buy that Acura MDX list, for example, 
you're adding maybe two or three dollars per thousand impressions to the cost of your ad buy, and those dollars go straight to the company that is maintaining that database. Uh, Likewise, the ad exchange takes money out, the DSP takes money out, your agency, of course, is taking money out, and basically at the end of the day, uh, by my experience, I'm seeing about 83 cents as a publisher of a small website uh, based on someone paying maybe five or six dollars or more to advertise on my site. So the publishers are losing here to a large degree, but there's so much volume of traffic that they end up making enough to make these sites work. And the more traffic you have, the more money you're going to make. But along the way here, these people are making a lot more. And this is the ad industry. This is how it works. Uh, This is how I essentially earn my living on YouTube because most of the revenue I get from YouTube comes from this targeted type of advertising where YouTube videos are being put in front of you based on specific profiles that advertisers are requesting. So I am benefiting from it personally. I know about all of this because I do some of this ad buying for some consulting clients as well. Uh, And this is the reality of the web that we're in today. Now, I like the fact that there are people looking at different ways to do things. And I think that is something that needs to happen because Facebook and Google now know a lot about us. In fact, they know more about us than all of those data matching services do. In the case of Google, they know what I'm thinking. They know what I'm searching for. In the case of Facebook, they know what my interests are because they know what I'm clicking on and what I'm spending more time looking at. And when they go to advertisers to sell something, they have a very large degree of confidence that the targeting that they are offering is going to be very accurate. And in my experience, especially on Facebook, it is very, very accurate. And it's pretty scary sometimes how accurate it is Uh, based on what they're able to discern from your activity. Uh, There's also some other things out there you might want to read, like this story in the Wall Street Journal. This was an editorial. Um, Google actually knows what you've purchased on Amazon because they parse the emails coming back from Amazon uh, when you get a receipt, and a number of other online retailers as well. You can actually pull up that information and look at it. Uh, That was a result, I believe, of the GDPR legislation that requires these companies to show you what they have on you. And that was really an eye-opener to a lot of folks because this, again, is information from your personal email that is being used to build out your advertising profile. Uh, Likewise, the credit card companies are not innocent here either. Uh, MasterCard and American Express have been selling advertisers your information for a very long time. In fact, I would say it predates even the Internet. Uh, So what they're doing is they're taking consumer data based on your purchases on those credit cards They're selling that data to these data aggregators who then profit from it by offering those profiles to these ad exchanges. This is big money, folks, and everyone who interacts with you in any which way possible is extracting that information and selling it, and it's buried somewhere in a privacy policy. Now, Apple is uh, becoming more and more outspoken on this. Now, it should be noted that Apple did try to launch their own ad network a while back to target Uh, iPhone users in free apps. They dropped that uh, about five or six years ago, but it was something they were attempting to do. Now they're looking at it from a different perspective to say that we're the privacy company, uh, and they can do that because they charge more for their products. They actually build in profit margin into the hardware as opposed to selling the hardware at a slimmer margin in the hopes that they'll make it back on uh, advertising and other means of reaching consumers through directly targeted means. Uh, But this is the direction that Apple is taking. They want to put more on the device and less in the data center. And I think as devices get more powerful, 
I think we might begin seeing maybe a compromise where uh, you will be able to have the phone uh, kind of monitor what you are doing, but not releasing that data out and waiting to see what comes to it from exchanges looking to reach particular customers. And that might give you more control as to what data goes out, what information you want to keep in. And what I'm seeing with Apple in particular, uh, with their Siri system, is that it is able now to look in my calendar and see that I have a meeting coming up. And from that calendar entry, it can then go and check the traffic. Uh, But all along the way, nothing is happening in a data center. The phone is doing all of it locally. And as phones get more powerful, I think we might start seeing more and more of this uh, get offloaded to the local device and give the user the option to share certain bits of information or not, yet still gain some of the convenience that we're having from all of this AI working on our behalf. Now, uh, Apple gets criticized because Siri is not as advanced as the Google Assistant, for example, but the Google Assistant lives in a data center where it has all of this personal information on you and is able to, of course, process that and do some pretty amazing things with it. But it is becoming very concerning to know that so much of our private lives are sitting in these data centers and potentially accessible to the government and perhaps hackers as well if they're able to get into it. So that brings us back to the Brave browser and their basic attention token that will be the currency of this advertising model that they are building. And essentially what's going to happen here is that the browser is going to have some information collected about you, but it's not sending that data out to anyone. What's going to happen instead is that a catalog of potential ads will be pushed out to the browser, and the browser locally will determine what ads get matched up to you. Now, I think this is going to be difficult to implement at scale, especially if all of these ads, millions of them are getting sent down to devices. I'm sure they're going to come up with some way to make that process a little bit more efficient. But what's happening here is that rather than your browser telling the world everything that you're doing, it tells the world nothing and says, hey, send me whatever ads you have and I'll find the one that's most appropriate for the viewer that's on my current device. It will then, I guess, send back some data to say that the ad was viewed Uh, but Brave will not be getting any information about the person viewing it, and it's relying on the browser internally uh, to be able to make that determination. So it's going to work very similar, actually, to how the exchange system works now, but the difference is, is that your browser isn't going to be telling the world about you. It's going to keep what it knows and then look at what the world has for it. And I think that's a really intriguing way to look at this advertising and privacy problem because we do need ads to keep the web going, and we have to find a way to protect user privacy at the same time. Will Brave dominate this market? Probably not, but I can see this idea pushing the incumbent advertising industry into a more acceptable means of targeting for consumers. And this could very well be a model that will be replicated across the industry as more and more consumers opt out of being tracked online. Now, Destructo Disk makes a good point about ad fraud and could this Brave system be something that could be easily abused? And I think there's probably some potential for that. But I think it's going to be a lot more difficult than how the current system works, which is really rife with fraud right now. And the reason why there is so much fraud is that every one of these stages of that ad auction we talked about is largely disconnected from the other. And there's no overarching authority that determines whether or not an ad being displayed is being put in a place that is not a fraud site. I have seen in my experience buying ads that I get a ton of clicks and a ton of impressions from these websites that I've never heard of before, and I suspect many others haven't heard of before either. They basically simulate users uh, and, and just rack up revenue 
uh, from fake views. And that's something that can be done uh, very efficiently. In fact, just as about efficient as the ad system is itself. Fraud is a huge problem in the display market and it's not going away. I think the Brave model requires more effort to defraud it, although it's certainly possible. And we'll take a look at what they have to say about that in a second. Uh, Now, I found in browsing for the last three or four days on my MacBook Pro that it takes a while uh, to rack up any kind of usable funds here as a user. So in my instance here, so far I've earned $1.14 throughout the better part of a week on my MacBook Pro. I displayed about 69 ad notifications in that period of time. I would imagine as they start implementing different types of ads that they have on their uh, product uh, roadmap that we might see uh, a little bit more revenue coming in, but it's really going to take you a lot of effort to bring in any kind of sizable revenue here. Uh, they say a bulk of that revenue is actually going to go to the publishers and not to uh, the viewers of it. And they don't say that they're going to be uh, ha- free of fraud completely. They're going to say less fraud is what they're putting up on their website here. And they plan to do that through the use of cryptography, better client-side integrity, uh, transparency through the software. So there's going to be a lot of things they'll probably be running on the local client to try to look for behaviors that might be fraud-producing. But I do think it's going to take more effort to defraud Brave than it does right now with the regular ad exchanges. And to some degree, they're going to be uh, relatively safe in the sense that they're so obscure right now. Not a lot of people know about it. Not a lot of people are using it. And as such, there's not going to be as much money to take with a fraudulent activity as there might be in the future. So they're going to probably be looking at a lot of this uh, over the course of development here. And again, I just like the approach because I think this really is a neat idea of, first of all, giving the viewer a chunk of the revenue, not a huge amount, but some, giving the viewer the ability to distribute revenue to the people that they spend the most time and attention to, and having a targeted advertising system that uh, has the browser privately match the user up to appropriate ads versus that information getting sent out with each mouse click. And that's where I think we're seeing something kind of unique and interesting developing here, but it really is going to depend on the industry adopting this practice as a whole to make this better for everyone. And in our Q&A for you this week, I would love to hear from all of you about privacy online and how you are protecting it, if at all. I know a lot of folks just don't care. They're perfectly fine with it. They like the advertising being properly targeted, but many others are concerned. Let me know what you think and how you are protecting yourself down in the comments below. So this week on the channel, we've got a couple of things to check out. The first is the iPad 9.7. We got that review pretty much in the can, so you'll be seeing that very shortly. Uh, We're also going to look at Amazon's cheapest tablet, the all-new Fire 7, which sells for $49. Uh, Later in the week, I'm going to be going out to New York City for a little bit for a Pepcom show. These happen about once a quarter, and a bunch of the companies that we often focus on here on the channel come to this event. They're all in one room, and I can walk around and meet with a bunch of them in a short period of time. And I'll have a dispatch video from that event. It'll likely be uh, just a recap because I don't have a crew with me on this one, but we'll have a good overview of what to expect for the holiday and back-to-school shopping seasons from that show, hopefully. This one sometimes doesn't have much, but I'm thinking we might see a good amount of stuff there. I'll keep you posted on that. And then I got in this keyboard from iClever. It's a little folding keyboard, uh, but it's backlit and has full-size keys. Now, if you want to help support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. We still support Patreon as well. 
Uh, We also have our ongoing relationship with Plex, my favorite media serving application. You can sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required at lon.tv slash Plex. You can also sign up for a Plex pass or gift it to somebody else. And in all cases, we get a commission from that activity. So be sure to do that if you're looking to check out Plex. We have other channels that I do stuff on, including my extras channel for unboxings and supplementary content. We have my podcast, which is an audio version of this show that gets uploaded a little later in the week. We have the Snippets channel where I take portions of this video and make them shorter for uh, easier search and consumption. So if you wanted to share something that I talked about here on the show, rather than sharing the whole 30-something minutes, you can share the snippet, uh, which appears a little bit later in the week. And then we have my live stream archive at lon.tv slash live streams, where you can tune in for things that I previously live streamed out. If you like what I do, I suggest you hit that notification bell and make sure it's set for all notifications. Uh, YouTube just turned on a feature to look at your analytics related to the notification bell. And I learned that I am below the average. So maybe a few of you might want to click the bell and uh, jump me up a little bit there. Uh, You will get notified every time I do anything. And if you want to engage with the channel in different ways, you can do that through my email list at lon.tv slash email. We have the Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook where I post my snippets as well. We have the Facebook group, which is closing in on 700 members, which is a great source for Uh, content for this show and other things that I do at lon.tv slash Facebook group. And then we have the store at lon.tv slash store where I sell things that I've previously reviewed here on the channel and I'm now getting rid of. And I have a a friend in helping me this summer for a few hours a week on the channel and he is in the process of inventorying items that we're going to be listing there shortly. So if you want to get notified whenever I do have new things in the store, sign up at lon.tv slash store alert and you'll get a good deal on something that I previously reviewed here on the channel. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. Thank you all for sticking with me. I know I tend to talk a lot uh, in this video, but it's really important, I think, to uh, give you my thoughts on some of these really important technology issues. It's kind of therapeutic for me to have an audience to uh, talk to these uh, issues about and with. Uh, So I appreciate everybody doing that. I'm trying to figure out the best way to approach the wrap-up as well. So if you got to the end of the video, uh, let me know if this format is working for you or if we should look at breaking this up into maybe a couple different videos per week. I'm just trying to figure out what would be the best way to go because I'm seeing uh, crazy spikes and dips on the the wrap-up of viewership from one week to the other. I'm sure it's based on the topics that I cover, but I would love to hear from you how we can make this show more efficient, just like the modern advertising industry. And there goes the rest of the set. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman, and thank you for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Tom Albrecht, Brian Parker, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv 